You're listening to the Sunday morning sermons from North Bullet Christian Church, located in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. If you have questions or would like to know more information on our church and or ways to connect, grow, and serve with us, email us at info at northbulletcc.org or come and gather with us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. And with that, let's look at today's sermon. Uh, every single time, without fail, when I preach, I've said this before, I'm always dog-sitting. So when Keith said, hey, can you preach in a couple weeks? I said, ooh, ooh, someone's going to ask me to dog-sit for them. I'm going to make some money this weekend. And sure as the North Star, someone texted me and said, hey, can you dog-sit for me? And one of the blessings of that is, and I've, I've shared this story before, is I get to work and workshop my points and my sermon, and I get to read the text and just practice on the dogs uh, and see what they're feeling. You know, so I, I've said before, I think Paul went to the Gentiles, Jesus went to the Jews, and I went to the kennels and the dogs to preach to them. And they seemed to really like this morning's reading. One of them started taking notes. The other was barking in tongues. It was amazing. And so let's just see how we prepare our hearts as we read this encouraging passage uh, from the Lord, uh, from Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So uh, also I want to read uh, actually back in verse 29 uh, because verse 31 is going to start with, and what shall we say to these things? Well, what are these things? Well, we talked about it last week, but that was a week ago, and you may not have been here. And I want us to be refreshed by what is Paul talking about here. So I'm going to start in verse 29, and then the slides will pick back up on 31. So God's word reads this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Passages such as these give those of us who are in Christ great comfort. I mean, when you stop, when you breathe, and you read or listen to these verses, like, wow, What powerful truths we have set before us. Friends, if God is for us, who can be against us? The fierce and powerful love of God stands beside you and beside me. And if I were to ask you, if you truly believed in these verses, almost all of you uh, would say, yes, I believe these things. Uh, and if you answered, yes, I believe in these things, well, then I would say you need to tell your face because you look upset. You look like somebody kicked your dog this morning. Uh, you don't look happy. You don't look like you believe in these truths. 
So Christians, my aim for is this. Raise your heads high. Walk with joy. Many times in the church and in our preachings, uh, not just here, but everywhere, you know, we can focus on the difficulties of being a Christian, and I absolutely think we should. We should be aware of sufferings and trials that take place in the Christian life. We can also stand up here and say, man, you're a sinner. You can do absolutely nothing good apart from Christ, as we should. We should preach on sin, the reality of sin. But if that's all the Christian life has ever spoken of, just sufferings and browbeating, man, then we're doing a massive disservice to the Christian faith, and we're neglecting a large chunk of our Bible. So we should talk about sin. We need to talk about sin. But we also need to talk about the blessings of the Lord. People have a tendency to to swing the pendulum either, uh, I'm a depraved wretch, can't do anything, you know, nothing good over here. And then, oh, God is all just love and sunshine and rainbows and frolicking. Like, no, okay, we need to find the healthy balance between these two. But today, I want to talk to you about the blessings of being in Christ, the goodness that comes from a relationship with God. Read over those verses again. Look at the beauty that comes from being found in Christ. So our main idea, what's going to have us focus in on today is this. Paul's closing words in chapter 8 offer Christians beautiful truths that encourage us and motivate us. We should be energized. We should be amped up if we are believers in this room when we read passages like this. Paul's closing words offer Christians these beautiful truths. So pay attention. These words are encouraging and motivating to Christians. I love everybody in this room enough, whether I know you or not, uh, and I will get to know you, uh, enough to be 100% real with you. If you are in this room today and you do not possess a personal relationship with Jesus, if you do not call him Lord and Savior over your life, then these truths that we are going to discuss today do not apply to you, but they can. So stick around for the next 30 minutes or so. I want these truths to apply to you. I hope that these truths will one day apply to you. So my aim is this. This is my goal for today. I want the Christian in the room to feel empowered and to feel motivated and encouraged in what Christ has done. And I desire for the non-Christian to want and to desire these truths. I hope if you do not know Jesus, that you would come to know him. But hearing these truths today, I'm like, man, I want some of that. So what are these truths that Paul is speaking of here? Well, truth number one is this. No one can truly stand against God's people. Look again at verses 31, 32, and 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We can all say this. Who dares speak out against God's elect? It is God who justifies. One of the most restful things about being a believer is knowing that nothing in this world can have a hold on us or a claim on us anymore. Yes, like we are still going to battle with sin. We will still wrestle against principalities and powers, as Paul will say elsewhere. But those things have no claim on our soul anymore. When temptation comes our way, we can resist it firmly rooted in the love and the power of God Almighty. Look again backwards at uh, verse 29 
and 30. Notice how God did everything necessary for salvation, and we did nothing. Most people will say, or there's a famous quote out there uh, that says, the only thing we brought to the table of our salvation is the sin we needed saving from in the first place. God did everything. And so when we resist and see through the fake glamour of this world, it's only because God is on our side. It's only because God did the work. He stands for us, and therefore nothing can truly stand against us. Our enemy can do nothing to us. It has no power against us anymore. It's as if our great spiritual enemy, our great adversary, is that of a nine-year-old little boy who's coming at you just swinging his arms at you. Like, yeah, he's standing against you, but is he really? Like, little Benjamin Hammond is not knocking over Joey Chesser. I'm sorry. That's what it looks like, okay? This is the beautiful reality of God's people. Attacks will be thrown. Accusations will be laid against us. But God is for us. And God will not entertain these accusations from Satan. Look again at verse 33. Who dares bring a charge against God's elect? Who dares speak out against his children? If you flip over into the Old Testament, uh, we get this beautiful instance of something just like this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. I know I say that about every Old Testament passage, but this time I mean it. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3, we get this beautiful picture. Look at this. The prophet is taken up in a vision, and he sees this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. We would also say that that is Jesus. The angel of the Lord oftentimes is synonymous with Jesus. Not all the times, but oftentimes. The angel of the Lord. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. So we have Joshua, we have Jesus, and we have Satan standing right next to Joshua standing at his right hand, accusing Joshua. And the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then I said, let them put on a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. I love this story because if I can just be honest, it makes Satan look so stupid. Like Satan is over here in the corner, essentially tattling on Joshua. Like, well, God, did you know that he did this and he did this? And Joshua's all of these things and he struggles with this. And then God just tells Satan to shut up. He rebukes him. He says, get out of my sight. He's mine. This is our supposed great adversary, a cosmic tattletale. And yet God says, yeah, I know what he's done, Satan, but he's mine. So get out of here. Depart from me. And then they clothe him in vestments of pure white. And I like, uh, I like Zachariah. He's also just like, well, we'll put a new hat on him too while you're at it. Like it just put everything new on him. Cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And they give him new robes. Friends, there is not a soul on this earth nor a demon from hell that can raise any charge against you to God. Why? Because as sons and daughters, you have been bought with a price. You are his son, you are his daughter, and most importantly, you have been forgiven. Nothing stands against us in the power of God. 
Truth number two. This one's important. Because Jesus is interceding on our behalf, we can rest. What does it mean to be interceding? If you, if you didn't grow up in church, or maybe you just don't know what that word is, and you're kind of embarrassed to ask, I know I am half the time too. Keith will say a really big smart word. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. Uh, maybe, anyway, maybe interceding is one of those for you. Uh, what is intercession? It's the bringing together of two parties, of two people. We can think of like a parent uh, interceding on behalf of, their stu- of a student uh, and their son or daughter uh, to the teacher. Saying like, hey, my kid is struggling with science or struggling with math. Uh, what can we do to help? So the parents kind of bridging the gap between the teacher and the student. That's kind of what Jesus does with God. We could not enter into the presence of the holy God with all of our sin, with all of our guilt. And so it's through Christ's death on the cross, his intercession, if you will, that we are brought into God's holy presence. Jesus died on the cross, and he's up there praying and making intercession on your behalf so that you can enter into the presence of the Lord. And this is something Jesus does with great joy. It's not begrudging. He doesn't roll out of bed and go, oh, man, like I got to pray for Don Badami today. No, he goes, oh, I get to pray for Don Badami today. He's excited. He lives for these things. Hebrews 7, but he, being Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives for these kind of things. It brings him joy. When I go camping at Red River Gorge, uh, when I camp out under the beautiful scenery and the stars out there, it brings me great joy. I live for those kind of views. I live for those kind of moments. This is what Jesus in his intercession is like. He lives for these things. It's the whole reason he came in the first place. He loves it. He's the reason he came, lived, and died. It's the source of Jesus's joy to make intercession for you, to pray for you. Jesus' intercession goes beyond even more than just reconciling us to God. Like, hey, we're sinners. God is holy. We can't interact. We can't come into his presence. So Jesus does his intercession to bring us together, but it goes more than that. His intercession means at all hours of the day, yes, even right now, Jesus is praying over you. We could picture it this way. In this room right over here, on, to my right, your left, Jesus is in that room praying for you. He sits in the seat next to you praying for you. In John 17, uh, verse 7, Jesus has his 12 disciples in front of him, and he's praying over them uh, before the Lord. And look at what Jesus says. He says, I pray for them, the 12. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They are yours Does that not give peace to your soul? Does that not cause you, Christian, to just rest? To know that right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father praying for you. This means when you confess your sins in prayer to God and you might forget one or maybe you've sinned somewhere and you didn't know that you had sinned and you're oblivious to it, Jesus is praying over that right now for you. This means that when you are scared, anxious, depressed, confused, lacking wisdom, you're on the verge of collapse or burnout, Jesus is praying for you to stand firm and to overcome and to have peace and comfort. 
There's an old story about Martin Luther, the, the great reformer. Uh, before the Great Reformation happened, Luther was a monk in a monastery. Uh, and while he was a monk, Luther would spend three to four hours every single day in prayer and confession. He would neglect his chores and his duties because he would spend so much time praying to the Lord and confessing his sins. In fact, he prayed so much that his co-workers, the other monks, thought that Luther was a sexual deviant. They're like, what other sin could a monk be spending three hours, four hours in prayer for where he's neglecting all of his other chores? But what was happening was Luther was so petrified of sin that he made sure to confess every single sin that he had ever done that day Otherwise, how would he ever enter into heaven, he said. If there's one sin I haven't asked for forgiveness for, I'm going to go straight to hell, and I can't do that. We, Luther would later confess that he would go to bed trembling, a nervous wreck. What if I died in the middle of the night and I didn't repent over something, he would say. At this point in his life, Martin Luther did not understand that he had been justified, that all of his sins had been forgiven, past, present, and future. He didn't know that in those hours of the night where he's trying to find sleep, scared to death to go to sleep without repentance, that Jesus was interceding on his behalf in front of God. So what does that have to do with us? Friends, we have such a deep and impactful spiritual rest. Like your souls can have rest. You can lay your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep because at all times, Jesus is praying over you and the prophet Zephaniah will say he's singing over you. He sings songs over you. He prays over you, Christian. Go to sleep. Rest. In this respect, do not be like Luther once was know that you were wrapped in prayers by Jesus. So as you come before the Lord in repentance and in confession, you need not be afraid that you are missing a sin. Absolutely go before the Lord in prayer. Absolutely confess your sins. We are commanded in scriptures to do that. But if you miss one, if you accidentally forget one, something happens, God is not waiting to smite you. Know that as you bow your head in confession, Jesus stands and sits right next to you, praying over you, his arm wrapped around you. And as you leave today, and as you go about your day today, Jesus still stands here interceding and praying and confessing your sins before the Lord as well. He's interceding and praying for your protection, your spiritual maturity, your preservation, your perseverance, your leadership, your submission, your wisdom and discernment. He's covering it all. He's praying for it all. Dear friends, there has never been, never will be a minute or second where you are not being prayed and enveloped in prayer before the almighty ears of God. He is well acquainted with you to the degree that when we get to heaven one day, the angels may encircle and say, this is the one Jesus has been praying about. It's so good to meet you. Truth number three, this is the big one I want us to spend time on. There is nothing that can separate us from God and his love. There is nothing that can separate us from God and his love. Look again at verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Underline box, point arrows, I don't care. Whatever you want to do in your Bible to more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I don't think Paul was trying to hit a word count in his letter. I think he wanted to cover his whole basis here. What an uplifting point. What a good way to close out this series. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Once you are in Christ Jesus, once you are placed firmly in that hand of his, you cannot leave. You are forever placed in his steadfast love, whether you feel it or not, whether you wake up thinking he's mad at you or not. The love of God never departs from you. Paul gives two categories to cover the whole gambit. Nothing external and nothing internal inside of us will ever separate us from God's love. So nothing external will ever separate you. Okay, let's face it. When bad things happen, when bills don't get paid, if you're like me, when your car breaks down, when you don't get that second date, or if you're married, or if you're older, uh, when your upper soda mash doesn't air on time when you wanted it to, when things just aren't going your way, how long does it take for you to come to the conclusion of God hates me? Clearly God just hates me. I didn't read my Bible today. I didn't pray. I was late to church. That's why I got my speeding ticket. I, th- I share this all the time. Uh, I-, I struggle with that so often. Keith and I make jokes about it all the time. And it didn't help that I did forget to read my Bible when my car broke down. So I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. I don't know. You know but how long? Answer yourself honestly this. How long does it take to you for you to come to that conclusion? Your car didn't start this morning. Your job fired you. God hates me. No. When I've done things to upset the Almighty, somehow I'm out of his good graces. Somehow he just hates me and he's out to get me. In moments like these, and I'm preaching to myself, the biggest struggle in my entire life, if I can be vulnerable, the biggest struggle is struggling to think that God is some kind of God of karma. If I do good, he's going to bless me. If I do bad, he's out to get me. I have wrestled with that for years and years, and I'm still battling it. We have to think, and I have to think in moments like this, we have to think with our Bibles, not with our hearts. Because Paul boldly declares that once God calls you his, once he saves you, that love is never going to go away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing outside of our hearts and souls and minds can separate us from the love of God. Persecutions, tribulations, distress, Paul says, what does this mean? That means men could throw Joseph into prison. Men could hunt David for four years. Babylon could besiege the nation of Judah right before Habakkuk's eyes. Ahab and Jezebel could put bounties on the prophet Elijah's head. And yet in all of these things, the love of God never departed them. No, in all things, they were more than conquerors. And nothing internal will ever separate us from God's love. And look, I get it. When I go on a sin bender, when I'm screwing up every turn and twist, it's hard to think that God loves me. And I know he's just up there shaking his head at me like, oh, you're going to get it one of these days. But when I open my Bible to Romans 8, I see that nothing, not even myself, and I am my own worst enemy, nothing will separate me from the love of God. And I love this. I read Hebrews eleven sixteen, which says this. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, 
look at me. God is not ashamed to call you his. He is not ashamed to be associated with you. Despite our fallenness, God loves you and I more than anything. Our sins, internal, do not pull us apart from God when we sin and we struggle. So Moses could murder. Jacob could lie, cheat, and steal. Peter could blaspheme. John Mark could abandon his brothers in the moment of trials and tribulations and missionaries' journeys. When you and I lash out, we gossip, we slander, we doubt, we fall into lust, drunkenness, other sins and vices. Take heart that there is no sin that defines the people of God. God is not ashamed of you. And in all things, we are more than conquerors. Through the power of the resurrected Christ Jesus. God sees all of your imperfections, all of your insecurities, all of your sins. Yes, even that sin that you try to hide even from yourself. And he says, yes, that's the one I want. How much for it? And the world will respond and cry out, the blood of your son for then and only then can the price ever be paid. And without hesitation or a quiver in God's lip, he says, I'll pay the price, full amount. Where do I sign? We look at verse 32 of Romans 8. He gave his only son, church, to die for you. He, and he has not nor ever will regret that decision. Christian, raise your head high. Repent of your sin. Yes, fall before God's throne and embrace the love of God that he so desperately has for you in this life you will have pains and tribulations satan will come against you death itself may even come knocking at your door but not even that paul declares will ever separate you from god's love you and i are more than conquerors over everything and anything the world throws at us not because of my strength not because i'm on junior varsity or varsity christianity whatever that means but because of the power of god inside of me and his spirit who breathed life into me now i'm a conqueror more than that paul declares so christian in the room i ask you this why do you walk around so defeated? Why does your head bow and a frown go across your face? Why is your face so distraught all the time? Why are you so fearful? Please, when I tell you that there's victory in Jesus Christ, I mean absolute, total, no wiggle room or margin for error, victory in Jesus. Can I get an amen in this, please? <laughs> Thank you. What an encouragement for us. Man, when I look in the mirror, church, I am not proud sometimes of the man I am. Sometimes I want to throw up. I look gross and I'm disgusted with myself. But then I have to remind myself, that's the one Jesus wanted. And if it was just me and nobody else, if it was just me, he still would have died for me. And he still would have died for you. God is not ashamed to be called your God. Do not be ashamed to be called one of his friends and daughters and sons. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So as, we're, as we conclude, as we, we talk about these things, what does this mean for us? That means this, friends. Whoever you are in the room, come to the Lord's table, enter his household, all who would desire. The invitation is open to all. To the non-Christian in the room, I said I was going to get to you. Here we are. In the room, you too are invited. You too have an extended hand of God open to you. God wants you to be alongside him. God is not ashamed. He has invited you. These truths 
can be yours. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, these truths can be yours. They can apply to you. They can give your soul rest as well. You too can be more than a conqueror through the power of Christ and him crucified. I ask you, would you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection? Would you confess your sins to God? Would you repent? And would you walk in accordance to his purposes and his plans? As it stands now, non-Christian in the room, I don't know you. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. I love you enough to be real. You are not a conqueror. As it stands now, anything that comes against you, trials, difficulties, persecutions, whatever, they will overtake you. Maybe not all, but most. They will overtake you. But through the power of Christ alone, you may find victory and be free in him. These things, these chains, these shackles on your soul can be unbroken. The jail cell door can be unlocked and opened. Would you place your faith in Christ? We love you at this church. Whether this is your first time, second time, or you've been here for nine years, we love you. We want to walk with you. And one day I hope to walk the streets of glory with you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it say? Thou shalt be saved. I want to close with this verse from Paul. This is the end goal, friends. Christian, non-Christian, whoever, whoever you are. Paul, under the inspiration of God's word, or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 